So uh, today's message is illumining a path for your heart. We had a long discussion as to whether illumining was an actual word. I still don't know. But uh, anyway, we're, uh, my, my open today is about carbide headlamps. And these things are, um, uh, I, I have experience with doing this reaction, which I did in, uh, as a high school teacher in, uh, when I taught chemistry in high school. Uh, a carbide headlamp, which were the first to be used um, there uh, in that device there, the one that's lit up. These poor guys, imagine working in a mine back in 18-whatever. But um, the, uh, there's water and calcium carbide. And when you combine water with calcium carbide, you get acetylene gas. And you've probably heard of acetylene gas, but it's very flammable. Uh, I used to do this reaction inside a pumpkin and blow it up, and it's appropriate for Halloween. Um, use it, the whole pumpkin would fill up with acetylene gas. You put a little hole in behind the pumpkin, you light it with a match, and kaboom, the whole thing goes to pieces. It was really fun. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, today is about being led, and that's what God or Christ has come into the world to do, to lead us and... Um, you know, this this lamp, although it was uh, worked, I guess, well enough for there would ne- there would not be near enough uh, settling produced in this little device to be dangerous. So it was actually uh, quite useful. Uh, but now I have one of these at home, actually. You know, today you have this uh, LED headlamp that has rechargeable batteries and motion detectors. So we've come a long way since um, acetylene headlamps or carbide headlamps. Uh, the trick with leading in terms of what we're going to see is is not geographical. You know, God's not needing to get you to a certain place geographically. What he's leading is your heart. And there's no man-made device that can do that, that can illuminate the heart. And only God can illuminate the heart. And so let's, we're going to see today how he does it. So let's turn to our main passages, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And let's uh, open up with prayer and let's be thankful for God, uh, to God for his word. And for this concept, this wonderful truth that you and I can be led in our hearts uh, in, a, in a world that is very dark. And um, we've been born into that darkness and have been rescued from it. Although, and as we know, we can fall into sins and evil ways that uh, would lead us back into the thinking of darkness. And yet, God has a plan to keep us going towards certain places that are illuminated. And they illuminate the heart in ways that are wonderful. So let's be thankful for his word. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has set us free. Now that we are free, we need to walk. You use this term, Father, as a means of our living. You tell us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And that our walking is our day-to-day living. And we desire, Father, to live in the manner that would be the way of Christ, and Christ has given us that way. 
And He is the one who illuminates the heart. He is the one who um, provides for us the ability to see where we should go and how to get there. And this all happens within us. Whether we are in good circumstances or hard ones, whether we are in prosperity or adversity, no matter who we're with or where we are, our hearts will be led by you if we tap into the resources you've given us and by faith walk in the manner that you call us to. We ask, Father, that through your Spirit, our hearts would be enlightened today. We ask in Christ's name, amen. So Jesus came to illuminate our path, our life, uh, to illuminate the path, to shed a light for our feet. Uh, this this uh, principle is mentioned in multiple places throughout the Scripture. Uh, a light, and of course, the theme of light and darkness appears right at the beginning of the Bible. You know, right there, for Genesis one three, let there be light. Light comes from darkness, and God creates it out of nothing, and He you know, has provided that light. That light is, turns out to be Christ. As Christ come into the world, he is the light of the world. So it's a, the, the theme of darkness and light, the contrast between them uh, are very prevalent in the scripture, as you know. And when it comes to us personally, we have to be led and none of us can lead ourselves. So uh, none of us have a steering wheel. None of us have a steering mechanism. We don't know where to go. And as we've seen before, uh, not you know, some a recent class that we we have to be led from outside of ourselves, not from within, because somebody's going to lead us. And if it's the wrong somebody, they're going to lead us into sin and evil, and away from the path that God wants us to walk. <clears throat> so in life, there's a lot of choices. We know this. Um, I think think of it as a river. You don't follow a river very far before it branches off, and then those branches branch off, and those branches branch off, and it's just like life. It's easy to get twisted up. It's easy to get lost. Uh, we can easily be deceived. God is very clear to us that don't think you stand lest you fall. He tells us, don't be proud. You think that you know because you need to always depend upon me. So he leads our hearts so that no matter where we are, who we're with, or what the circumstances are, that our hearts are in the right place. And that provides uh, for us things like, for instance, one of, one of the words we'll look at today is peace. You know, and we've looked at this word many times, but you know it's always important to return to these major words that the Scripture uses that describe this life that God has given us. One of them is peace. And peace, in the New Testament, it's irene is the Greek word. And that word is equal to the word shalom in, in Hebrew in the Old Testament. And actually, shalom is really spoken of quite a bit as is peace in the New Testament. But if we're in the wrong place, we'll never have it. So 2 Thessalonians 3.1, Finally, brethren, we're going to review this real quick. Pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you. Pray for us. Three things he says. That the word may run. And that the word may be glorified. The second thing. And it's glorified when people accept it as coming from God. 
and that they would be delivered from unfitting, that's what perverse means, unfitting and evil men. And then he tells us why they're perverse and evil. Not all men have faith. So it's their lack of faith. Again, not nature or nurture. It's their lack of faith that caused people to be ill-equipped or ill-fitting. That's what that word means. They just don't fit. And by fitting, it means that the image of God, all are created in the image of God. And there's a, <clears throat> there's a moral authority that God has over every person and they don't fit it. There's a way that God has for every person and they don't fit it. And so why? Because they lack faith. Then he says in verse 3, the Lord is faithful. And that's really an amen there, by the way. The Lord is faithful. That's like, you could say that as a response to a prayer. Amen means I believe it. You know, amen in, in Greek, it means I believe it or verily, I trust it. When you say the Lord is faithful, it's an amen. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We looked at that yesterday. It looks very much like the Lord's Prayer. The last uh, petition in the Lord's Prayer. Give us today. Uh, sorry, that's not it. That's not it. <laughs> uh, but protect us from the evil one. Is uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord. Verse four concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. And so Paul has great confidence. He's already expressed this in his letters to them, and this shows us too that our you know, our, um, it's the faithfulness of God that makes us obedient. and he, not, not that he forces us, and I'm, I'm sure you know that, but if we are following him, we will become more obedient. So obedience breeds more obedience. And then he says in verse 5, that's what we're focusing on today, is really the word direct. Um, is may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. <clears throat> now, all mankind is under the authority of God. And there's no escape from this. That's why all will be judged. All mankind is under the moral authority of God. And... You know, do they they get away with things? Yeah, the the wicked prosper. Yeah, all all that good things happen to bad people. Uh huh. Those who don't have faith in God get rich and comfortable, and things work out in their lives. That's true. But in the end, all are judged, and so it's up to God. You know, we could come up with all kinds of reasons of why the wicked prosper in individual cases. All we can say is that God is everything under control and that everybody at the end will be judged. It is unmistakable throughout Scripture that mankind is under this authority. Take, for instance, Psalm 50, verses 4 and 6. It's one example of many. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. And in verse 6, and the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Salah. Right? Righteousness comes from where? Heaven. It comes from God. He is the source and he will judge all. Notice it says all the earth will be judged. Even us as believers, we, there's a judgment seat of Christ for us. Um, but, you know, what? thankfully, wonderfully, we'll appear at that judgment seat knowing that our sins are completely and forever forgiven. So why do I say this? Well, Paul's encounters with evil men, as we saw just in a few chapters in Acts a couple classes ago, 
But all throughout the book of Acts, spelled out all these instances of where Paul is treated horribly by evil people. As we saw in Ecclesiastes, the world doesn't always look like we thought it would or it should. The righteous should prosper and the wicked should get it. But they don't all the time. We saw in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 that to the righteous, wicked things happen and to the wicked, righteous things happen. Solomon, who writes that, has got his hands up in the air going, I don't get it. That's basically what he's saying. He's looked at life from his vantage point of great wisdom, and he's looked at the world, he's looked at people, and he's like, "Ah, this doesn't make any sense. (laughs) And it's a wonderful book when you see it that way. He's not saying everything is meaningless in that book. He's saying everything is fleeting, short, and incalculable. None of us could really iron it down why things happen the way that they do. Without the love of God, people become self-serving and jealous. So where is we, where, why do we say that? Because Paul said, pray for us that we'll be delivered from perverse and evil men. They're going to be all around us. And so we looked at yesterday, we need to pray. Uh, Tuesday, yesterday and the day before, we need to pray for others and we need to pray for ourselves. That we are delivered and it does never, as Paul, pray for the, the pain to go away. He tried that once. Take the thorn from my flesh, and God didn't give him any answers. Um, so he's te- he doesn't tell us to do that. What Paul tells us to do is to pray that we can get through it. And that's actually what our last word, well, the last word you see here is Christ in verse 5. But notice the steadfastness is of Christ, and that's that's really something. That's actually kind of scary. That I'm to be led to a place where my heart has the endurance of not just some great man, not of Paul. I mean, that would be daunting enough. But I'm to have the endurance of Christ. This love that we're, our heart is to have. We know what agape love means, right? We talked about it not long ago. This is sacrificial love where I'm laying down my life for even my enemies. That is the love of God. It's not the love of just anybody. And this is where we're being led to. Right? The imagery of being led to a place. Right? You should keep that because it helps us see it. But that place, it's not a geographical place. It's, um, it's love and endurance. Of God and of Christ. Without the love of God, people become self-serving and jealous. To Paul, it was often the Jews. They didn't want Paul to have success, even though they saw people get delivered. They saw right in front of them people believe the gospel and have their lives completely changed for the better. And yet they didn't care about that. What they cared about was Paul being more successful than they were. And so they became jealous. And the Jews didn't want the Gentiles to be fellow heirs of life. And then Paul tells us that alone is the Lord your deliverer. Deliver us from all temptation, right? Deliver us from the evil one. The Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you. That word protect means to guard. The Lord alone is your deliverer. 
And so as we saw, pray for the deliverance of others and pray for yourself. Deliverance. Which is also another way of saying that I'm going to endure and they're not going to get to me. They're not going to cause me to be bitter. They're not going to cause me to be angry. They're not going to cause me to be completely broken. That's what they want. They're not going to do it. They can take everything, but I am not going to stop depending on the one, the only one, who can deliver me. And that you need prayer in that. Pretty, when you're in the thick of it, you know this. this. When you're in the thick of persecution, you find yourself praying far more frequently, and rightly so. You keep, keep in constant contact with God. If you know others who are going through the difficulty as they're trying to minister God's work, you should pray for them as well. They should be on your prayer list, and you should be praying for them every day. Of course, we've seen here that Paul asks for prayer. He demands it. It's a command. Pray for us. It was a com- he puts it in the imperative. It's a command. We saw also how many times Paul asked for prayer. 1 Corinthians, Romans 15, Colossians 4, Ephesians 6. Pray continually for all the saints and for us that I might have boldness to speak the gospel. Pray that in uh, Colossians, he said, pray the doors would open. I think that's in Colossians. It's somewhere in the New Testament. Pray the doors would be open for the gospel, for us. Pray that we would be delivered. Pray that boldness would come to my mouth when I preach the gospel. If prayer doesn't matter, why does Paul keep asking for it? But it certainly does. The Lord alone is your deliverer. And the Lord alone is your deliverer and your leader. And that's verse 5. Pray that others will follow. Pray others and you will follow his guidance to life. And by life here is love and endurance. Paul could have, Paul could have thrown in here a long list of virtues. He puts in two. You know, it's good enough. You know, when he's writing this letter, he has the Thessalonians in mind. And he's thinking about what they need more than anything. They're being heavily persecuted. They need love, especially for their enemies, who used to be their neighbors and friends. Remember, it's only a very short time after Paul had gone to Thessalonica when he writes this letter. It's only a few months ago that, that he is now writing this letter from Corinth and they are heavily persecuted. They just became believers like... At most a year ago, but less than that, certainly less than that. And people who were their neighbors and friends and their buddies that they went to the game and had a beer with or whatever are now persecuting them, hating them, won't speak with them, won't do business with them, hate them. And so they need endurance, they also need love. And so for us, even though we're not the Thessalonians, this letter greatly applies. You know, Paul and all the others wrote letters to people for particular reasons. And it's important to know those reasons so that we can interpret what the writers are writing and interpret it correctly. But God is plenty smart enough to take every circumstance by which a letter was written and to make it so composed that it applies to us now. 
Like if you're being persecuted by those who are close to you, Thessalonians is the place to go. You're going to find more help there for that particular situation than you will in other places. So pray that others will follow his guidance. As we know, we can get distracted. We can be following. Our eyes have to be on the prize. Our eyes have to be on the goal. Right? So of Christ that said his face was set like flint for that's pointed towards the cross. He knew where he had to go, and that's where he was going. And we have to have the same attitude. But we can get lost. We can get very lost in it. Uh, Psalm 46, 1 through 2. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Uh, so, um, this is what you see in Hebrew poetry is parallelism. The first line, God is our refuge and strength. The second line, a very present help in trouble. It emphasizes the first line. Then in verse 2, therefore we will not fear. Though the earth should change. So, you know, this, I'm loving poetry more, than, more and more. I've got to be my old age, I, I'm thinking. But, um, you know, it's the imagery you can use in a poem. And, and poems have short lines, so you can see the whole line in one gaze, right? And so you're looking at this image. And the image is that incredibly, the earth could change right under my feet. You know, it could be an earthquake or something. And yet, I won't fear. Notice the next line. And the next line now, it, it emph- not emphasizes it, but raises it up. And the, this often happens in Hebrew poetry, that the second parallel line goes farther. And, th- and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, and inferred, is what's in the first line. Therefore, we will not fear. Yeah, so if I'm here in Oregon, standing on the coast, and all of a sudden the mountains, the coastal mountain range starts falling into the sea, I'm going to say, oh, great. Some people are going to have some very expensive property now because it'll be waterfront. But other, you know, also, it huge, if a mountain, like the image really is speaking of huge changes in your life. Huge. Should you fear? No, oh, God is it all under control. Go to Luke chapter 1. Wait, 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 before you go, before you go. Hold on. All right, so this word, may the Lord direct your heart. So verse 5, see it? May the Lord direct your hearts. And that word direct, which is a word to guide, to make your path straight, is rare. It's only used three times in the New Testament. There are other words for leading and bringing that are far more used, used more often. This one's rare. And another. And so the reason that when it's rare like this, it piques my attention or my curiosity, and I go and look and see where else it's used. And here it's used, it's only used two other times, and one of those times is in Luke 1. So let's go there. Luke 1, 76. Luke 1 is a huge chapter. Luke 1, verse 76. And here it's translated guide. So, um, 
in our passage it's translated direct. May the Lord direct you, same as guide. This rare verb is used by Zacharias. Zacharias, in my notes that I spelt his name wrong, is used by Zacharias when he prophesies concerning his son, John the Baptist. And so, you know, I won't describe for the sake of time, but you, you probably know the story of Zacharias. He's going to have a son in his old age. Uh, he's very much Abraham-like in this. And uh, that's John the Baptist. So here's his prophecy, starting in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. Now that's a fulfillment of Malachi 3.1. The prophet Malachi prophesied that someone would come to be the forerunner of Christ that would make his path straight. And that's John the Baptist. And so you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. Now, this sunrise from on high, in my New American Standard, sunrise is capitalized because it's referencing Christ, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, what we see here is something that is very much related to our main passage. May, Paul said, God God direct you into the love of God. May the Lord direct you into the love of God and the endurance of Christ. And here we have a lit darkness, right, to shine upon those who sit in darkness. So there's this image of someone sitting in darkness. And notice the darkness is so dark that it's in the shadow of death. And that image of, I'm not just like in a dark room, I'm destined for death, which in this case would be judgment. But someone comes and shines. And he's described as the sunrise. The sunrise from on high will visit us. And, you know, I hope you can soak in the imagery there because the, the, it's, poet, it's poetic. This is from Isaiah. And it's just, it's wonderfully beautiful. A sunrise from heaven. Sunrise doesn't come from heaven. But this one does. And what does this sunrise do? He visits us. He comes to us. We don't go to him. And he shines upon us. And who's he shining upon? Those of us, all, and all of us are, sitting in darkness. Like, we're sitting in a place where the dead go. Like we're one step outside the door of the morgue in a dark place. So, we keep keep this in mind. But first, before we go there, the way of peace. Notice what he's to guard, uh, guide our... So, I'm going to keep this on the board. We're going to go to Isaiah 9 here in a second. Because this is what he's referencing. He's referencing Isaiah. And this shining upon us is to guide our feet into a way. And this way is of peace. As I said, peace is, the Hebrew equivalent is shalom. 
And I want to read you a passage from this book. This um, uh, Cornelius Plantinga. He's an um, evangelical theologian. He's quite good. Uh, and he, write, he wrote a book on sin. And uh, it's great. It's called uh, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And, um, you know, I know you're looking for more books to read. It's a good one. All right. So this is under Shalom. Just a couple paragraphs. As the great writing prophets of the Bible knew, sin has a thousand faces. The prophets knew how many ways human life can go wrong because they knew how many ways human life can go right. You need the concept of a wall on plum to tell when one is off. These prophets kept dreaming of a time when God would put things right again. And he gives multiple passages of prophets that prophesy that. They dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would be straightened out, rough places made plain. The foolish would be made wise and the wise humble. They dreamed of a time when the deserts would flower, the mountains would run with wine, weeping would cease, and people could go to sleep without weapons on their laps. People would work in peace and work to fruitful effect. Lambs could lie down with lions. All nature would be fruitful, benign, and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood. And all nature and all humans would look to God, walk with God, lean toward God, and delight in God. Shouts of joy and recognition would well up from valleys and seas, from women in streets, and from men on ships. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom, in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. And that's the peace that is spoken of here by Zacharias. It's not just peace of mind that, I, you know, I feel good, I'm cool. It's more than that. It's a harmony of life with God, with others, and with everything that's around you. In other words, it's love and endurance. So go to Isaiah 9-2. Isaiah 9-2. And the reason I'm, I normally would just throw Isaiah 9-2 up on the board so you can reference it, but there's another part to this that's going to lead us back to the Gospels and then back to our passage, okay? So we've got, in our passage, may, God, may the Lord direct you, which leads us to the sunrise from on high will visit us, Zechariah's prophecy in Luke, which is going to lead us to Isaiah, which is going to lead us to Matthew, which is going to lead us back to our passage. And, you know, I do this a lot, as you know. I love this stuff. My, 
my only concern when I do this is that while we're hopping around, we forget why we're over here. So what are we doing in Isaiah? Sometimes I'm up here and I'm like, what am I doing in Isaiah? So um, it, it's easy to get lost. So that's why I'm, I'm trying and keep us, <laughs> keep us as focused as we can. But the Bible is a seamless whole, and that's why we can do this all the time. Um, we just have to be careful not to get lost and lose our context. But the message here is on us being led, those of us who are in, we're in darkness, but we're still in a dark world. As Plantinga brings out in his book, even though, if you have shalom, you're the happiest person on earth, by the way. You're happier than the person who has the most money in the world if you have shalom in your heart. <clears throat> but we're surrounded by darkness. Right? Jesus told us yesterday that tomorrow has enough worry of its own. Tomorrow will worry for itself. In other words, it's filled with it. When he said, he said it, evil, you know, there's evil around us. There's evil today, there's evil tomorrow. He told us, just be concerned about today. Tomorrow will take care of itself. And we can be, we're tempted by it. And that's why we, we have to be led. We have to be consciously praying. Jesus said, pray this. Lead us, not into temptation. Lead us, Lord. We don't want to go over there. We want to follow you over there. And that's a daily prayer. We have to be constantly on the alert. And we know what happens when we're not. So look at Isaiah 9.2. Here's the reference. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. This is the only light that can guide hearts, which is the light here of the Lord. Now this prophecy in Isaiah 9 is, you know, it's, it's awesome. In chapter 8, God has, through Isaiah, condemned Israel for their darkness. Uh, and why were they dark? Or why did they have darkness? In chapter 8, they followed spiritists and diviners. What these people were, were kind of like these charlatans. Uh, Balaam was one, uh, where you could go to them and they'd have, I don't know, bones or, uh, you know, they'd look, read tea leaves, you know, or something like that and tell you your future. Saul went to one, the witch, uh, that Endor lady, went at the end of his life. They're diviners. And, you know, people loved them back then. You could go to these people and say, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to my crops this year? Is my kid going to survive? You know, whatever. And see, so why were they walking in darkness? They went to spiritists. They went to diviners. They went to the wrong person to lead them. And that's in chapter 8. And then immediately God says, you people who walk in darkness, what's going to happen is you're going to see a great light. And that's awesome. Why, does, why would God show them the light? And by the way, we're going to see that when they see this light, these people who are in darkness, they're going to see a great light. It's going to be awesome. Are they going to follow it? And though they're not going to, God shows it anyway. Isn't that amazing? 
God knows their response. He shows the light anyway. The one who's going to show the light is him. He's in Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 is the first servant song. He will be a light to the nations to open blind eyes. This great messianic miracle of, of healing the man born blind that speaks of this right here. He said to the Pharisees, he said to the Pharisees, you think you see, but you're blind. Anyway. Now, in Isaiah 9, so as this goes on, what is this light? You see Jesus here, but you also see him in chapter 9. I didn't put it in my notes because I knew I'm running out of time, but 9, 6, and 7. Go ahead, look at it. You know the verse. 9, 6, and 7, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. He will be called Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Eternal Father. It's Isaiah 9, 6. It's hugely popular in Christian circles. As the gift of our Lord, a child would be given to us. In John 1, 4, and 5, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So, notice here, and I always point it out when we reference this verse, is that He's not the light, He's the life. And the life is the light. It's very important to get that order proper. proper. It's the life that is the light. His eternal life, that's the light. So if it's, I have a picture of Jesus, you don't have a light. You need to know His life. So look at Isaiah 9.1. Right? Go prior right here, verse, verse 1. So again, after chapter 8, in which chapter 8 ends with the condemnation upon the people who sought guidance from mediums and spiritists. In other words, they, they followed false guides. And then he says in verse 1, there, but, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And my heart goes out to people who try to read Isaiah. Because you always come across verses like this and you're just like, it makes you go cross-eyed. Like, what in the world is he talking about? It's so hard to discern. But first off, we recognize some things here. We recognize Galilee. And perhaps we remember or recognize that in the Gospels, Jesus' ministry was huge in Galilee. Maybe we don't know much about Zebulun and Naphtali. You know, where in the world are they? But the, the thrust of verse 1 is that no more gloom for her who was in anguish. Right? So there's going to be comfort. If there's no more gloom, there's going to be comfort. And he says later on he will make it glorious. And then in verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Okay? So we have this reference to Galilee 
And then we have a reference to the light. Now, in Galilee, here's our little map. You know how I love maps. And Zebulun is here. And Naphtali is here. And there's two town, There's a town in Zebulun that is very important in the ministry of Jesus. And that is, if I can draw a line to it, right there is Nazareth. That's in Zebulun. And Capernaum is another place that we see a lot in the Gospels. It's right there at the top. That little blue thing there is the Sea of Galilee. Let me get my ink off of here. So we have Nazareth here and Capernaum here. That's the Sea of Galilee in the middle. And Jesus goes to his hometown Nazareth, right? You remember this? And he goes to them and he starts reading the book of Isaiah in the synagogue. And he says, today, the day of the, this, this day has been fulfilled. He reads Isaiah 61, which is about the Messiah. Everybody in that synagogue knows that that passage is about the Messiah. I've come to set the captive free. And he says, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And what are his family and friends and neighbors who were so impressed with him talking in the synagogue, what did they want to do to him? They took him to a cliff and wanted to throw him off. And the Chosen did this in one of their episodes in the last season. They did a great job with it. In the Chosen, he just looks at them with a stern face and he says, you're not doing this today. And he walks off. That's great. Like, yeah, get him. Now, who knows how it went down, but they did a good job of it. So, this is reference Isaiah 9 1. Now, here we jump to Matthew. Go to Matthew 4. This is right at the start of his ministry, or at least as, as Matthew has it here. Matthew 4 12. We'll try and put this all together. But you'll, you'll see the, there's, there's a theme here in all of these passages. Matthew 4.12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody. So we, now we have also here a reference to John the Baptist. Who Zechariah, his father, was prophesying about. He withdrew to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum. Which is by the sea. So he went from... Um, Zebulun to Naphtali. So in leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and, and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. And now he quotes Isaiah 9.1. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. So before Jesus is born, Zechariah mentions this, and it's the same word, he, but the word that Zechariah uses is the word that's in our passage. He will be a guide to guide our feet in the way of peace. Paul prays that we may be led or guided to love and endurance. And here we have this 
Matthew quoting Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. And there's a, another, you know, the, the thing here is he leaves Nazareth. As Matthew tells us, he left Nazareth. Why would he have left Nazareth? Because his people, he, sa- he said, I'm not going to even do the miracles here in Nazareth that I've done in other places. Because a prophet is not accepted in his own hometown. But he goes to Capernaum. Capernaum is his headquarters for a while. He, he works out of there. And it's actually to Capernaum that he pronounces a woe. So we read on in the Gospels and he says to Capernaum that you're headed for hell. That's what he says. Now why is that? Well, the light shined. I mean, right here. How many miracles did he do in Capernaum? Probably thousands. How much teaching day in and day out? The teaching, the, the kingdom of God is upon you. Here's a miracle. Here's another miracle. Here's another miracle. Healing people by the thousands. Preaching, preaching, preaching. Fulfilling, showing people. I'm, I'm fulfilling all prophecy. And so many of them in these, these places, they go, nah, I don't think so. I don't think you're the one. And they didn't believe in him. But please notice, the light shined there anyway. God shined the light. He knew the people were going to choose darkness and He shined the light anyway. So what about us? As if if we are led into love and endurance. Notice those two together. Love, love which is my sacrificial way of life for others and endurance meaning that no matter what they throw at me i can still stand firm steadfast and trust my lord do you know what kind of a witness you're going to be when you're like that what a light you're going to be and should you care about who's going to receive it and who won't if you start caring about that you remember these passages Jesus knew they weren't going to accept him, and he he shined the light anyway. We are to do it too. So, putting them all together, and you could go back, go back to 2 Thessalonians 3. And I'll try to wrap this up in a nice little bow. We see from Zechariah, a light shall shine on them who sit in darkness. Also see that in Isaiah. To guide our feet in the way of peace. And upon them, the Gentiles in Galilee, a light dawned. There's many Jews, of course, too. There's Gentiles as well. But upon them, a light dawned. And that light is now in us. Jesus has told us clearly, the New Testament tells us very clearly, that we are indwelt by Jesus Christ. And so we... It's a no-brainer. You know, it's all up to us. You can be led towards more love and more endurance. We never get there and say, well, I finished. What do I do now? We never get there like that. We're always going towards more. It's a very exciting thing to know that me, despite my nurture and despite my nature, 
despite my background, despite my DNA, despite the family I would fight, despite all the dysfunctional things I've done in the past, despite all my sins, I will have the endurance of Christ. I will have the love of God. Because he is leading me. What I've got to do is follow. So, second th- uh, that's 3, 4. Because now, now that we have the light shines in the darkness, he's a guide to our feet, to the way of peace. And then... There's our passage. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. It's the same light and the same leading. We have, but here's if we have to follow, right? This uh, way to get there is not some complex spiritual formula. It is obey. What am I supposed to do? Obey. What do I do now? Obey. What do I do then? <laughs> Obey. Keep doing what you're told to do by your Lord. That's what Jesus did. So we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, verse 4, that you are going to do, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. When he says, may the Lord, his optative mood he uses here. And this, and this rare verb is even in a rare mood. Uh, that sounds funny. Sometimes you're in a rare mood, you know. But this uh, optative mood is rare in the New Testament, and it means a wish. It means Paul's, it's a mood of wish. Paul wishes that God would lead their hearts or direct their hearts into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. So where are we being led to? I still haven't decided if we're going to do a, are we doing a class on Sunday on patience? Are you like, come on, Joe, We you know, how many times have we done endurance and patience? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know yet. We'll see what God says. Uh, but where are we going? Love is agape, the agape of God, and steadfastness is hupomone. Now, there's two words for patience. It means patience, perseverance, and endurance. I should have patience in there too. Um, and there's two words in the New Testament for patience. One macrothemia, which is generally in the context of patience with people. And then there's this word. And this word is used, it's used quite a bit in the New Testament. Somewhere around 50, 60 times. And um, it means endurance with circumstances. And as usual, and I, I think I say this quite a bit, and uh, I, I was always told to repeat myself. And as I get older, it's getting easier to do that. But um, it mean, this word means that you do not try to get out of the situation. You, you can pray to get out. You can pray to God, take the thorn out. If he says no, he says no. It doesn't mean that you can't pray it. But this is not you hoping for the situation to end, which you can. I mean, all of us do it. There's nothing wrong with that as far as I'm concerned. But it's enduring in it. The ability to stand strong in the tribulation, in the trial, in the hurt, in the pain, in the loss. And to and when people are... Uh, 
uh, I'm thinking of Job here, doing a lot of work on Job lately, but I, it, <clears throat> Job's three friends were of no comfort to him. And when you're going through tough stuff, there's going to be people in your life that are not only not going to give you comfort, but maybe some of them have been hoping and waiting that you would go through something like this and they're rejoicing in it. And they're actually going to try and hurt you in it. You know, you're down and they're going to put their boot on your neck and try and push you down farther. You say, God, this doesn't make any sense. He's like, no kidding. It doesn't make any sense to you, dummy. Makes all kinds of sense to me. Follow me. And where do we get endurance? I knew you were going to ask. Romans 5.3. We could go to, uh, not 100. We go to like 50 passages to tell us where. But tribulation brings about perseverance. That's hupomone, perseverance. Tribulation. And then, remember our old friend James. He's just a legalist anyway, right? So don't, don't even read him. I'm joking. But consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces hupomone. James says you should really be enjoying this. You say, yeah, another trial. This is awesome. My endurance is going to be even greater once this trial is done. You know, and you start thinking that way, you are more mature than I am. I, but we all got to we all got to go for it, right? We all have to. That's where we're going, um, just as James says. So, what gives endurance? If there aren't any trials, if there aren't any tribulation, we're never going to get it. You don't get endurance from book knowledge. You learn about what endurance is from book knowledge, but you only get endurance from living it, from application. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that you and you alone guide us. May we endure, Father, by through these trials that you will certainly allow to come in our lives. May we trust you at those times. Even when we do freak out or whatever, maybe become angry, may 